This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics and the election campaign. Then, world-renowned philosopher Peter Singer, who is a professor of bioethics at Princeton University, joined me to talk about utilitarianism, effective altruism and his philosophical arguments on how we should treat animals. We also discussed his seminal work, Animal Liberation, which was first published in 1975. Peter Singer is in Melbourne as part of Law Week. Then, finally, historians Dr Heather Sheard and Dr Ruth Lee joined me in the studio to talk about their book, Women to the Front, The Extraordinary Women Doctors of the Great War. Welcome, Ben Eltham, who has come in to talk about federal politics and the election. Hi there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. How's life? Yeah, life's not too bad, thank you. Yeah. Quite busy. Well, naturally, this is a very busy time of year, just as Christmas would be for Santa, such is for political commentators, the federal election. Yes, few things going on. Just a few. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get out of the way some of the messy things that have happened in the last week. In particular, it's... We've really started to see um, what the parties have have been lacking, which is a very strong vetting process of their candidates. We've seen candidates on both sides of the Liberal and Labor parties step down or be forced to step down or and or disendorsed because of views that they have either expressed many years ago or actually very recently, and in many cases on social media. So, Ben, this has some impact on a couple of seats that were um, a lot closer than some of the others where it was really just putting in a candidate because they needed to to field one. Yeah, that's right. So last week, week three of the campaign was really dominated by uh, a whole bunch of scandals around various candidates, as you mentioned, some of the things that they'd said or posted on social media in their past coming back to haunt them. Um, And we saw candidates from both the major parties stepping down in the wake of those controversies. So we had a uh, Liberal candidate down in Tasmania forced to step aside uh, over some of the uh, Islamophobic um, and racist comments that she'd made on social media. And we saw a Labor candidate in the seat of Melbourne, Joel Creasy, uh, and was it Luke Creasy? Luke, Luke. yeah. Not the comedian. See, I got... I actually posted this the other day because he, he put up a post. He said, guys, it's it's not me. I'm Joel Creasy. Please don't say it. And now it's in my head. Yeah, yeah. And I've said it. So you I'm so, did. I'm so sorry. Sorry, Joel. I'm so sorry, Ben apologises. Well, I mean, they are young and both, you know, look a little bit similar. They they don't look completely different, put it that way. I've, I've literally done the thing I reminded myself not to do this morning when coming <laughs> in for this show. <laughs> so there you go. That's how the brain works, yep. isn't it? Isn't it? Don't yeah. think of the elephant. Uh, Luke Creasy, the Labor candidate, was forced to step down over some pretty uh, pretty nasty mm. misogynistic comments that uh, he made on social media a number of years ago. Um, so I don't think they've had any sort of big impact on the campaign in general, but they have definitely affected particular seats. Uh, so it's very difficult now for the, for the parties to win those seats, obviously. It's yep. a massive gift to Adam Bant in Isn't Melbourne, it? actually, because uh, a lot of Labor supporters thought that they might have a chance of taking Melbourne back off the Greens this election. Of course, that's not going to happen now, and Bant will uh, 
pad out his margin and he'll be very safe now for a couple of elections. So that's a that's a very little, a very big fillip for the Greens there. Mm. Um, well, it also enables the Greens to redirect their campaign funds to other areas so that some of those close um, seats in Melbourne can actually get more attention. Yes, and the smart money is now on wills with uh, Adam Pulford uh, now mounting a pretty good challenge against Peter Khalil there in the seat based around Brunswick and Coburg. The broader picture of the campaign was that the, the candidate scandals really sort of distracted the media and distracted a lot of the attention from the policy discussion for a whole week, which uh, ironically really played into Labor's favour because when the media reset and started looking at the campaign again, in basically on the weekend, on Sunday, what happened was Labor's campaign launch. Yes. And uh, that went off very well. It was a, a very choreographed and well-organised affair. Bill Shorten gave a good speech. There was a speech from Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. Paul Keating turned up and Mm -hmm. gave an impromptu interview on the ABC. That generated lots of media. So the whole thing went down very well for Labor. And really we're starting to see, I think, the the pattern of the campaign emerging, which is that Labor, after some early stumbles, is starting to get its act together. And in contrast, the the wheels are starting to fall off for the coalition, I think. Well, yes, they are. That's The speech was pretty good for a shortened speech. It was one of his better ones. Yeah. I mean, it's all relative it's, it's at this point. It's a low bar that we're jumping over here. This it is. is not Barack Obama. No, we're not, it's not gr- great oratory. A lot of people kind of commented that they missed uh, Graham Frydenberg and his wonderful speeches. It, I don't think even Bill Shorten would agree, would, you know, I, I think even Shorten would agree that he's not a great speech maker Uh, but he is rather good I think in the town hall format as we saw last night on Mm Q&A where um, he's quite good at answering questions from the audience and I think the experience of doing something like 80 town halls around the country over the last year or so really showed there. Um, He's uh, surprisingly empathetic for a major party politician and he's he's certainly across the policy. He's very sharp on his feet. He's a good thinker um, you know, he's not he's not the greatest deliverer um, or, or the greatest actor, if you like. But you know, I think that there's a there's a grain of authenticity there that voters are starting to switch on to. I mean, he's not going to be a popular leader ever, I think. And in a way, that's worked to Labor's advantage because it's forced them to focus on policies, and it's really policies that is uh, keeping Labor ahead in, in the current election campaign. And also, when it hinges on a personality and someone's popularity, things are much more unstable because one person can fall out of favour quite easily, whereas if you have a team where responsibility is distributed and policy is equally, I guess, strong. And we there are some quite strong policy players like Chris Bowen, Penny Wong and many others. So as um, Bill Shorten has said, when people ask about his popularity, it's not really about him, it's about their policies and about his team. Yeah, and I think that's actually true. And, you know, um, look, the the proof of the pudding will be on election day but if we turn our attention to the coalition we can see the opposite of that where they are running a presidential style campaign based pretty solely around scott morrison most of the liberal front bench has been nowhere to be seen with the exception of josh frydenberg who witness protection everyone's been joking um absolutely so we've seen literally nothing of front benches like mitch fifield uh Mm -hmm. melissa price (laughs) you know they do wheel simon burn 
Birmingham out from time to time. He's seen as a, a safe pair of hands. But they're well down on talent when it comes to the front bench. And, and so Morrison's tried to really run the campaign around himself and around his own appearances. Uh, but again, they don't, they don't have any policies to announce. So every time Morrison's going on the TV, he doesn't really have much to talk about except why Labor is bad. And over the five-week campaign, I think that message is starting to wear a little thin. Yes. Well, he's mainly focusing on their economic record, which he believes is excellent. Of course, that's up for debate. And saying that they know how to uh, manage money and therefore they know how to spend money, which was one of his um, sayings that was repeated over and over again in the People's Forum, which was on Friday night. And... um, Obviously, you can take the the voting from an audience with a grain of salt because it's a tiny sample size and it's in Queensland, um, so that's naturally going to tend towards the LNP. But um, Bill Shorten came got ahead by a couple of percentage points in terms of how the audience perceived the two leaders. Shorten's won every debate so far. Um, yes, the first debate a lot more, like yep. a bigger win. Yeah, but uh, I mean, he's two and zero at the moment. There'll be a third one this week. Um, which shows you how desperate the coalition is because to have three debates for uh, a government is pretty unusual and it shows that they're desperate. They're really hoping to land a king hit on Shorten. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, of course. Um, And if we look at the polls, and of course some people hate talking about the polls, but they are a mathematically representative picture of where the electorate's at um, if we take enough of them together. And what they show is that uh, the polls haven't really moved that much. So Labor's still about 51 to 49 for the coalition in two-party preferred terms. So Labor is ahead. Labor's in an election-winning position. The coalition is not closing the gap at this point, and that must be very worrying in a coalition headquarters. Yes, it's interesting um, that... Bill Shorten did that Q&A last night by himself and spent a lot of the time hinting and saying, where is the Prime Minister? Why isn't he also on Q&A? And, of course, Josh Frydenberg had his moment in the sun on Q&A probably a month ago now when he delivered his budget. So they have had some airing. Um, We did see the Prime Minister appear on 7.30 and be grilled by Lee Sales and he didn't come out too badly, but he did actually admit that uh, emissions have been rising under his government, which is something which we've seen um, Environment Minister Melissa Price do a dance around for many, many, many weeks. And it is kind of, I guess, refreshing to finally see someone actually admitting facts. Well, I thought it was a disastrous appearance for Morrison on 7.30 last night. He hectored Lee Sales. He talked over her. He... um uh, Sales, in, in, in a very obvious but intelligent line of questioning, forced him, as you said, to admit that emissions are rising and that the coalition, coalition's current policies are failing on emissions. Um, and, and I think it, it was a, a very damaging appearance, basically limited only by the fact that there wouldn't be too many swinging voters watching the 7.30. So, um, mm, but- I disagree with you. I think he looked poorly when it came to the way he treated Lee because, as you say, he did continually speak over her and when she wanted to move to another question she couldn't get it out she probably had to say it about eight times before he let her speak Um, but I don't think you know they really delivered a massive dent on some of um, Morrison's messaging which although I disagree with it and don't think it's particularly representative it's still kind of not um, you know it's it's hard to make a dent in it 
Well, of course it's hard to make a dent in it because it's a uh, hermetically sealed, illogical and factually incorrect line of messaging. So, I mean, you know, if you continue... A lot of people do, like, lap that up, though. If you looked at the Sky... Yes, of course, it's politics. Yeah, the People's Forum, people would say, oh, I thought, you know, Scott Morrison was so relatable and, you know, he just seemed like he really understood us and he listened and, oh, Bill Shorten was arrogant. So there's a whole range of differing perceptions depending on the person who's actually sitting and and watching. I don't think Morrison is distinctly unpopular, but nor is he particularly popular, you know. Well, he's not a Malcolm Turnbull. No, no, not even close. Um, But, you know, in terms of his... In terms of his attack lines or his, his messaging, you know, I mean, as we've talked about, he's talking about how Labor can't manage money, Labor's bad for the economy. These are tried and tested talking points from the coalition for a generation now. They do cut through with voters who are sort of almost automatically inclined to believe that the coalition is better at managing money, perhaps because it's the party of business or perhaps because there are business people in the Liberal Party it's seen as representing business interests. But uh, it's not the case, really, is it? I mean, the economy's in trouble. Uh, I think the Reserve Bank will actually cut interest rates today, which is a bad look for the government coming into an election. Um, And the reason they'll cut it is because the economy is weak. So, uh, you know, leaving aside that kind of stuff, um, you know, I think there's a growing kind of gap between the two parties on the bigger picture on the philosophy of what an economy is for. So the government keeps banging on about the economy, the economy, the economy. Labor, I think, has been quite successful in taking that question or that debate to the next step and saying, what is an economy for? You know, what is it for? Is it just about growth, endless growth, unemployment, whatever, GDP, the budget? Or is it about, you know, a living wage, being able to pay the rent, being able to buy a house as a young family, being able to send your kids to childcare? Labor's been able to reframe the economic debate to talk about ordinary people's lives, and I think that's been very successful. And hints, I think, at a broader shift here in what might be happening this election is that Labor's begun to stake out a new social democratic position for the party, and it's a little bit to the left of where we've seen the Labor Party over the last 20 to 30 years. I don't think it's a massive shift. It's certainly not Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the United Kingdom Labor, but it's a significant shift in the sense that they're saying we do want to raise taxes, we do want people to pay higher taxes, particularly wealthy people and corporations, and we're going to use that tax money to fix up the welfare net, fix up Medicare, you know, spend more money on social services. That is a significant shift, I think. Yes, it is. It certainly is. Um, And they are focusing on the issues which are their strengths, such as health and education. And, um, And also, but it is really interesting the way that they keep framing it is that really this is all about choices and we're choosing something different. The coalition is choosing to give tax cuts to wealthier people. They're choosing to enable multinationals to avoid some levels of tax. They're choosing that retirees can receive a gift in the form of um, a a cheque in the mail when they don't pay income tax. A lot of their messaging is quite strong because it is true we are making choices and Labor is choosing to in fact close 
close tax loopholes and subsidies and um and but i guess one thing that a lot of people then perceive perhaps the average voter might assume is that means they're increasing taxes which of course they're not they're just actually closing subsidies and loopholes that's right so they're not increasing tax rates as such uh what they're doing is removing some of the very generous tax concessions that have been built into the system largely by john howard and peter costello in the the final years of their government um, and the result is that tax revenues will rise uh, but they'll be very modest rises and they're going to be spent on social services like health and education and welfare and things like that so Labor is giving voters a choice about what sort of democracy voters want. And I think one of the reasons why it's getting traction is because ordinary voters are coming to understand that we live in an increasingly unequal society, you know, and you only have to sort of look at how difficult it is, particularly for younger families, for uh, people entering the workforce at the moment. I mean, there's a very big generational gap opening up in the electorate at the moment between uh, wealthier, retired people um, who are doing pretty well, it has to be said, particularly if they own their own house, um, and between people who are locked out of the housing market in increasingly insecure and precarious employment haven't had a wage rise in five or six years you know these are the sort of people that labor's pitch i think is appealing to yes and one of the new policy announcements that came out from um, bill shorten's speech on sunday was around um, small business incentives to employ younger people and also older people so people who've been out of the workforce and are struggling to actually get a job and he really targeted what he believes is ageism um, in the Australian workforce whereby people over the age of 55 really struggle if they do become employed to then get re-employed. Yeah, I thought this was actually a really good policy because there's a big problem, particularly for older Australians uh, seeking work. You know, employers, for whatever reason, seem to have pretty bad prejudices against older workers despite the fact that they've got a lot of experience and presumably a lot of skills there's a real bias towards hiring younger workers and I think that just speaks to the actual broader problems in our labour market which is that even though unemployment is 5% and that's seemingly a low number there's an awful lot of people who are looking for work who can't get it and that's probably one of the reasons why wages aren't moving you know we actually do have a pretty slack labour market Unemployment could fall a lot further, I think, um, and there'd probably be no impact on inflation. So, you know, I think Shorten's policies are around raising wages and um, trying to increase the the bargaining power of workers in the labour market. I think they're good policies. Mm. Ben, let's just uh, finish our discussion by talking about the independents, and there's a number of them running this year, and a lot of them are high profile. Um, we've seen an ad just overnight come out which features probably a large proportion of these well-known independents, such as Rob Oakeshott, Karen Phelps, Julia Banks, um, Rebecca Sharkey, a whole range of people who are, you know, quite well-known and are actually contesting um, seats that are pretty important. Another is obviously Warringah, which is Tony Abbott's yes, seat. Yes, indeed. Zali Stegall. Um, 
It's interesting that the independents are positioning themselves as, of course, we're independent from the parties, we're also independent from each other, but we want to collaborate, share resources and provide a sense of stability should more independents get elected, that they are trying to sell themselves as people who will be collaborative and will be um, rational and evidence-based in their approach to whoever they need to work with. Yes, I think it's a really interesting development in this election and I think it speaks to some long-term trends about the uh, long-term fall in the support for the major parties and that's really allowing some of these independents some of the space that's going to get them elected, I think, some of them. I think Zali Stegall's looking pretty good up in Warringah. She's just pulled ahead Yeah, yeah. Polls, um, yeah. I mean, I don't believe seat-by-seat polls very much but, you know, there's there's definitely a bit of momentum up there. Um one thing that does seem to work for independents is once they get elected, they seem to become very popular with local voters. Uh, local electorates seem to be uh, really, really quite positive about an independent candidate once they get into parliament because they see that they are able to firstly advocate for their constituents and secondly they're not beholden to factions or party politics they're able to make up their own minds so you know people like Andrew Wilkie in Hobart for example I mean he's been a tremendously successful independent candidate and he's got a huge margin down Mm. there Uh, Rebecca Sharkey in Mayo I think is very safe there same reason voters seem to really like the fact that she'll go into bat for them and, and their interests and she's not beholden to the, the major party politics. So I think we are seeing a bit of a move on with the independents and it would be really interesting if Oakeshott got up again yes. because you know he, he was a, a very thoughtful contributor to Julia Gillard's government and of course one of the major architects of the carbon policy that <laughs> caused her so much trouble but turned out to be a good policy and reduced emissions and worked. So yeah I think there's a lot of talent potentially a about to enter the next parliament. Yeah, it is very exciting. And a lot of them have um, focused on climate change as being one of those core issues that they believe uh, the two major parties aren't doing enough on. Well, that's undoubted. I mean, you just have to look at where things are at in our environment. Um, A devastating report just out from uh, the UN, I believe, about just how bad the extinction crisis is in our our biodiversity and our natural habitat. I mean, it's actually pretty scary. I mean, I've got kids. I mean, it's terrifying to me as a parent. This is the world that we're leaving them. And so I think this stuff, ordinary voters, you know, it's not top of their mind, but it kind of sinks in in the back there, right? And Mm. it actually plays on people's minds late at night or when they're going for a walk and they're thinking about the world that, that we live in, you know. It worries people. And then when they see the major parties holding a lump of coal in the parliament or they see Bill Shorten refusing to stop the Adani mine because of so-called sovereign risk, you know, those arguments seem, I think, very uh, very threadbare mm. against when you put them against the survival of the planet. So... Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt the major parties are well behind on the environment. Yeah, well, it's going to be an exciting election night, but we have one more discussion before then, Ben, so um, stay tuned yeah, for so more developments. Must smash out another article for New Matilda, and um, I'll be here next week, and I'm going to be vox popping on Saturday, so I'm going to be driving around the eastern suburbs, going to some marginal seats. and Nice. So uh, maybe I'll even record some audio to play for you or something, I don't know. Good idea. Um, but yeah, looking forward to it, Amy. Excellent. Well, make sure you tweet it out too so everyone can rock up. Uh, Yes, I will be on the Twitters. Have a latte with you. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, whatever your tipple, absolutely. Yeah, tea and chai. Um, I will try not to eat too many democracy sausages. <laughs> yes, you do need to be careful with sausages, don't you? Uh, they can they can get away from you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Ben, for coming in to talk about federal politics. Thanks, mate. I've been speaking with Ben Eltham, who's the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and we've been discussing federal politics and the federal election, which is, of course, the campaign is on right now and we are in full campaign mode. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm really pleased and delighted to have with me on Skype the wonderful Peter Singer, who is uh, a world-renowned philosopher and bioethicist. He is a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He's also a laureate professor at the University of Melbourne and hails from Melbourne but uh, lives mainly over in the US uh, nowadays. And Peter Singer is in Melbourne for a number of events, which is wonderful. Um, He will be appearing at a, a Law Week event next Tuesday, a dinner conversation with Peter Singer. And uh, he's also delivering a lecture tonight at Swinburne University about uh, philanthropy and well he's not delivering a lecture he's having a conversation with the wonderful Peter Mears who we've also had on this show and in fact uh, I believe we were talking about Peter Singer's um, work with the, in that discussion so I'm delighted now to welcome Peter. Hi there. Hi Amy good to be with you. Thanks so much for taking the time out to speak with us today. Oh, I'm very happy to do that. Um, if I just mentioned the, the conversation this evening, yes. although it's uh, hosted by Swinburne University, it's actually in Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, it's not out at Swinburne. But I think it may be sold out. I don't know. But if people want to go, they can still try. Sometimes uh, people don't turn up. Yes, I believe there's a wait list. So you could put your name down because um, obviously yeah, people do make those last-minute cancellations. So um, let's head into philosophy. Um it's really exciting for me, having studied a bit of philosophy, um, to speak to you about a, a real um, theory and philosophical idea that has had a great amount of influence in the world. And one of, well, I'm thinking in particular about utilitarianism, which is um, certainly was introduced to me in my subject on ethical theory and certainly one of the most prominent uh, utilitarians of the 19th century was John Stuart Mill, although he was not the first to have um, talked about and furthered the ideas that are relating to utilitarianism. Um, but I'd like to understand from you, first of all, what are the what's the common ground that all utilitarians um, base their, their theory or their ideas on? Okay, well, obviously it depends a little bit on exactly how you define utilitarianism, but let me say utilitarianism is part of a larger group of theories that philosophers now called consequentialism. And the common ground for all consequentialists is that they think that whether an action is right or wrong depends on its consequences. So it doesn't depend on whether you obey some rule or like like the Ten Commandments or some other set of rules uh, or and it doesn't really depend on whether you're uh, violating some human right you know even that could be justified if the consequences are, are good enough so so that's the first thing that you say well whether an action is right or wrong you have to look at the consequences what's going to come out of that um, 
And that's this general larger family of theories. And uh, the way I use the term utilitarianism, it's one among a number of different consequentialist theories. And it's distinguished from the others by the fact that the consequences that utilitarians look at are consequences for the well-being of all of those affected. So essentially, utilitarians say, we're interested in making everybody affected better off in some way. Now, exactly what they mean by well-being uh, or making them better off, that's something we can talk about in more detail. But they're, they're in that general family. So they wouldn't just say, for example, well, the consequences that I'm interested in are um, preserving justice, irrespective of its consequences. You know, some people might say justice, that there's a just outcome is a good result. And there's this old saying, let justice be done, even though the heavens fall. So utilitarians would not say that. They would say, no, if by the heavens falling you mean justice is done, but let's say you know the world is destroyed, um, then that would be a terrible consequence. And we don't support the idea of justice even at the cost of destroying the world. So, uh, so that's how I would regard utilitarians. They're, they're consequentialists concerned with the well-being of all of those affected. Right. And... In terms of the ways that we also look about look at those positive consequences, there is that um, flip side about the negative consequences. And um, you've spoken in your work about suffering and reducing um, pointless suffering, suffering that isn't, um, you know, required in this life, and to reduce the amount of suffering. How does that fit into um, a, a kind of utilitarianism? Yeah. Well, when I talked about well-being. Um, there's obviously positive well-being, so let's say everybody's very happy or enjoying their lives, um, and then there's negative well-being, which would be they're suffering, they're miserable, they're in pain, um, those kinds of things. So, so you can think of uh, putting well-being on a scale where perhaps uh, there's a zero level um, where you're neither happy nor miserable, and then there's a plus level and there's a negative level where you're miserable. And what utilitarians want to do is to have the greatest possible uh, positive surplus of, of well-being. That is, you know, after you deduct the negatives, the pain and suffering, there's the greatest possible positive suffer, uh, surplus left. Or if you're a pessimist and you believe, well, we can't actually produce a positive, then you would like the smallest possible negative. You would like to reduce the suffering as much as possible. So uh, this is all, all part of the one scale, I guess. Utilitarians think that in some way they're, they're on one kind of spectrum and you can move from suffering through a level of indifference to a positive level on that scale. Yes, and some of the um, key proponents of utilitarianism in the early years um, were people like uh, Jeremy Bentham and also John Stuart Mill. And I was interested to read um, in a, a short introduction that you wrote on utilitarianism uh, about some of the ideas that Bentham was putting forward around defending things like sexual freedom and sexual tastes and um, his, his point that we should not be punished for having differing um, sexual practices or tastes unless they could be shown to cause harm. Um, that seems to be a fairly progressive um, and forward-thinking view. Do you think that that um, utilitarianism has pushed um, society along in kind of moving forward on issues like that? Oh, definitely. I think utilitarianism has been a very progressive force. Um, and we're only just really learning how progressive Bentham was because 
uh, on some, I mean, on some issues, of course, he wrote a great deal in his lifetime uh, and was very progressive on things like uh, uh, voting reform, you know, pushing for a broader suffrage, um, on things like uh, more humane prisons, uh, uh, even on the treatment of animals, which I hope we'll be talking about later. He, he wrote in his own lifetime. But, uh, and also, I should say, uh, both Mill and Bentham, of course, were very strong advocates for women, um, for uh, equality for women. But um, Bentham, at least, didn't always dare to put forward his views in public because he thought they would discredit uh, some of these ideas. So, for example, on the question of, of extending the suffrage so that more people could vote, Bentham put forward the view that every man ought to have a vote, you know, irrespective of income and wealth, which at the time it was very restricted. And he actually wrote privately um, to, to uh, other utilitarians. He wrote, of course, I really believe that every woman should have a vote as well. But if I put that forward in my public writing, I'm just going to be ridiculed. And the idea of giving every man a vote isn't going to get anywhere. That was basically his thinking. Um, and on the sexual questions, um, he also did not publish these in his own lifetime. Bentham left, a, I think, something like 48,000 pages of unpublished writings, a vast amount, um, which is only just starting to be read and published because the handwriting isn't always very good either. Um, but so, the, so the, his, his writings on sexual freedom have only been published in the last 20 or 30 years, um, and some of them more recently than that. But yes, he, he's very progressive, and he's very clear that... Um, you know, the people may have differences of taste, whether you have, you know, sex with a person of the opposite sex or a person of the same sex, for example. Um, and uh, he says, you know, but to, to ruin a person, to make them a criminal, essentially, um, simply because you differ from their taste is, is something uh, unacceptable. But, but that's in an unpublished work that, that he thought was just not going to be really tolerated at the time that he was living. Mm, it's fascinating that that is only just coming out. Um, and John Stuart Mill was seen as really someone who was picking up from Bentham and carrying forward his legacy and building on it. And um, as you say, he was a progressive, he was a feminist himself and um, later married Harriet Taylor Mill, who um, he gave a lot of credit for when it comes to his works around uh, women and progressing women's rights, not just to vote, but to own property and to stand for parliament and um, as you've highlighted in this um, work that his piece the subjection of women was um, a very important work in 1869 um, he seemed to have been able to at least put some of those views out uh, more publicly and um, although I, I do understand that he was also um, understandably at the time ridiculed because of some of the things he was saying were so progressive and so different um, to what the current practice was in regards to women. Yes, you're, you're, you're quite right. Um, he certainly was well in advance of his time, but uh, he was, I guess, more at ease with the public. He actually became a member of parliament uh, briefly um, than, than Bentham, who was somewhat, you know, more of a recluse, I guess. Um, and uh, perhaps things had progressed a bit in the, the years since Bentham was alive. Mill was, you know, we're talking about, say, 40 years after Bentham died when Mill was writing the, publishing The Subjection of Women. Uh, and you're quite right that Harriet Taylor had a major role in that, and Mill acknowledged that clearly. Um, so uh, I think maybe, yes, things have become a little bit easier, uh, but still not on the sexuality question that we were talking about, I don't, as far as I remember. Oh, I suppose actually it's true that in, in Mill's writing on liberty, um, there's an implication that you should not make 
uh, any act a crime unless it harms others. So there's a kind of implication that if consenting adults have sexual relations in private that other people don't like or even think are immoral, um, that should not be criminalised. Uh, but as far as I remember, I don't think Mill actually used that as an example. I think he probably thought even still at that time that would be going too far for the public to to talk about explicitly talk about same-sex relationships in that context. Yes. Um, so let's move into the discussion around animals. And um, in the, the same publication, um, you're talking about um, utilitarian views about animals and there's so many elements of animals and their welfare. And, of course, the, the end of the spectrum is that they're killed um, for humans to consume, but they are also treated um, in many cases poorly and not treated with the same um, rights or dignity that a human being would be treated with. Um, so I'd just like to um, highlight what you've said in um, one one or two sentences and we can spring from that point. Um, you write, although utilitarian views about the painless killing of animals vary, all the leading utilitarians are clear that suffering is no less bad when it is the suffering of an animal than when it is the suffering of a human. And um, you also quote Jeremy Bentham in saying he was looking forward to the time when, quote, humanity will extend its mantle over everything which breathes. So in terms of the significance of animals and the fact that they should be treated um, in the same way in, in terms of their suffering as we might treat or um, perceive a humans, why, is, why, we'd, why would we do that and why do animals um, have or should have that kind of treatment? Well, I would argue that the reason for not regarding the pain of an animal as less significant than the similar kind of pain when experienced by a human is quite parallel to the reasons why we reject uh, racism and sexism. Right? If, if somebody said, you know, well, of course, I, I care about when white people are in pain, but if uh, a black person is in pain, that doesn't matter so much. Uh, we would immediately say, well, you know, why? You know, how can you how can you justify that claim? Um, if if they're in pain and there's a similar amount of pain, it's it's irrelevant what colour their skin is or what race they are, and equally, it's irrelevant whether they're male or female. Um, so, I think that we can say the same about their species. You know, uh, of course, it may be that beings of different species feel pain differently uh, or don't feel pain in certain ways that we might that's relevant and utilitarians would all agree that that's relevant but just the fact that i'm a member of the species homo sapien and you're a member of uh, i don't know pantroglodytes let's say the chimpanzee you're a chimpanzee um is no reason to think that the the, the pain of the chimpanzee is less important uh, that it matters less if the chimpanzee is suffering in a similar way and that i think would be true of any animal that is capable of feeling pain Yes, and we know that animals are capable of feeling more than just physical pain, but they can be experiencing other types of pain or suffering, such as um, they might feel neglected or bored or... Um treated they might have there is this kind of emotional connection between humans and animals that's often unspoken and but kind of understood on a on a non-verbal level isn't there Yes, we certainly understand it with the animals that we're close to. So people who, who live with dogs or cats um, will certainly understand that, those kinds of emotional responses. They will understand, you know, among the things you mentioned, boredom, but also things like, like fear. 
um, they will uh, the separation of a of a mother and her young, if we're talking about mammals anyway, um, clearly causes distress to both of them. So there's lots of these kinds of uh, emotional responses that that we're aware of. I, I think the main problem is that although we're aware of that, if it comes to dogs. Um, the same kind of thing will happen if we're talking about cows or pigs, let's say, um, and yet we don't, we're not so aware of that. We somehow don't think of them because we don't have them living in the house with us. We don't think of them, we don't get to know them, and we don't think of them as, uh, you know, as really mattering in the same way that we might think of our companion animals as mattering. Yes, that's a, an excellent point. Um, I know from my own experience with part of my family growing up on a farm um, you know when you are face to face with a cow or a pig and you um, have I guess a, an unspoken interaction with them you can see in their eyes and in their soul something else um, more and that's what I think moved me to become vegetarian when I was in grade three many many years ago um, was seeing a very you know pigs are such an intelligent um, species or animal and I saw one pig that was in a pig farm that had been so overfed that it couldn't actually stand up and move and it was about to be taken off to be slaughtered and that was the moment when I realised I couldn't possibly eat an animal. Um, and I'm wondering whether there are similar moments for you or other people that you've um, met who have, I guess, had a connection with animals and then realised um, perhaps the, the consequences of their other choices in life. Well, I know that many people do have this kind of aha moment, and um, you know I welcome that. And I think you're very brave to have made that decision already in in third grade, especially if I don't know if you were still living on a farm at the time. But that does seem a, a brave act of rebellion. Um, but personally, no. I mean, I, I guess my my aha moment came much later um, when I was in my twenties and already a graduate student at at Oxford, and it was not through an encounter with uh, a non-human animal. It was a conversation with, uh, actually, I think really the first vegetarian I'd ever talked to. And, and I know this will seem very strange today, that you could go through your entire life, you know, being an undergraduate at Melbourne University, um, uh, being in my mid-20s, um, before I'd actually met a vegetarian or had a conversation with a, vegeta a vegetarian. Maybe I'd, I'd met an Indian who was a vegetarian or something like that, but obviously I wasn't going to be a Hindu. I wasn't going to relate to that sort of reasons for being vegetarian. But this was a Canadian uh, student at Oxford, a fellow philosophy student, who you know, was a vegetarian basically because he thought we shouldn't treat animals the way they are treated to be turned into, into meat. And I'd never really encountered that kind of straightforward view about animals, and I didn't know very much about how they were treated either. I assumed that they had good lives on farms, grazing in the fields, um, and then, of course, they did get rounded up and taken to slaughter. I, I knew that. But I thought, well, maybe it's worth it because of their, you know, their good lives, and they, then that, that just happens at the end, but it's not the same for them as it would be for a human. But, but at that time already, I'm talking about um, 1970, uh, already factory farming was developing. So many animals, particularly pigs and chickens and, and laying hens that lay eggs as well as the chickens we eat, um, were being brought inside and crowded together very intensely in, in darkened sheds that really didn't give them any kind of positive life at all. You know, all of that boredom that you were talking about and stress from overcrowding, and lots of other problems. Uh, so this conversation with the Canadian student um, 
led me to look into this a bit more, which wasn't easy to do either. There was nothing much written about it except one book by uh, a pioneering woman called Ruth Harrison. Uh, the book was called um, Animal Machines. And um, and I read that and, and I was quite shocked, I have to say. Uh, so that was that was my aha moment that, that after all, we treat well, the way we treat animals isn't really compatible with any having any concern for their interests. It's just we just at that level it was just kind of an, an economic thing. How can we produce the product as cheaply as possible, and whatever we have to do to the animal to make the product cheaper, we're going to do it. Mm. Yes, um, it, it's interesting you say that. Um, I certainly, when I encountered this pig, was um, I was actually on a grade three camp. So um, we were there to, to hug the baby pigs and um, appreciate new life and animals. And I actually came a- away with a totally different view of how we're treating animals. So it was um, pretty shocking. It's interesting that you encountered that idea over in England um, through another person. And then you subsequently wrote a really important book in 1975 called Animal Liberation, which, as you say, pre- previously there was not a lot written about um, this whole issue of how we're treating animals in um, the the way that you did and um, also talking about these ideas of vegetarianism and um, later on veganism. So how did people respond to your book, Animal Liberation, and what do you think, what would you perceive to be the biggest contribution or um, catalyzation effect that it had? Well, um, the, the book had, had varying responses when it first came out. Um, some of them were ridicule, you know, basically, look, you know, here's somebody who, because this was in the 70s, right, people talked about um, you know, the black liberation movement, the women's liberation movement, um, uh, even the gay liberation movement, I guess. Um, but, you know, so there was this idea of, you know, well, now we've had the ultimate absurdity, right? People think that there should be animal liberation. And and they ridiculed it by implying that my idea was that you just open the farm gates and let all the animals run free, which, of course, would not have been a good idea. Um, so there was that kind of uh, ridicule and, and incomprehension. Um, uh, but at the same time i started to get a lot of positive responses to it and it got some very good reviews it got a very positive review in the new york times um book review uh section and uh, a, a couple of others and, and that was really encouraging and then within a year or two people started developing organizations like people for the ethical treatment of animals um which sort of re- kept referring to the book as a sort of philosophical basis for what they were doing um and and those groups grew and uh, the books the ideas of the book spread uh for that reason in fact various organizations like there was an animal liberation front that used to raid laboratories and take animals out um, and they would leave a copy of animal liberation behind which you know i thought was a nice idea in a way <laughs> give the people something to read to understand why other people had thought that they shouldn't be doing what they were in the in the labs uh so it's it definitely did catch on of course my great regret is that it it hasn't caught on sufficiently to stop things that I was writing about, to stop uh, factory farming, uh, to stop uh, unjustifiable and painful experiments on animals. Uh, it's so it it's had some impact, but uh, really it needs to go a lot further. Yes, exactly, and uh, lots of 
parts of the world are obviously moving at a different pace as well. If we're looking at Australia, there's been so many different um, stories come out that have had a lot of controversy around them, particularly around live exports where we are putting um, sheep, for example, on ships and sending them over to the Middle East or to Asia um, and, you know, many of them dying on the way. Um, there's also, as you say, factory farming and um, the, the real political interests that still exist when it comes to um, the the eggs and egg industry and, um, you know, really not enabling uh, hens to actually have enough space to move uh, or even stand comfortably. So, you know, those issues are really still front and centre, I guess, in a way in Australia, or at least they haven't been adequately addressed. Um, but I had I had noted um, in some of the work that you've done that you have been quite heartened at least by the European Union in terms of some of their changes that have been made, um, albeit over a very long time period. Yes, you're right. The, the European Union is definitely ahead of Australia um, because there are things that still exist in Australia, um, like the standard battery cage, the very small wire cage in which hens are, are cramped up with uh, no separate place to lay an egg and not enough room even to fully stretch their wings. Um, those uh, have been made illegal across the entire European Union. The, 27 or is it 28 now countries of the European Union um, and uh, you know that's countries that we might think of as not having the same welfare standards for animals as us right we think we think of Spain saying we say oh they allow bullfighting they must be much crueler but in fact you know if you're a random animal in Spain you probably have a much better life than a random animal in Australia because there are very very few bulls used in bullfighting but there are hundreds of millions of, of hens used in cage well anyway millions of, of hens in cages um, and the hens in cages in Spain under EU rules all have more space and a better life than the ones in Australia. Uh, we still have uh, sows in, in breeding sows, that's the mothers of the pigs who are sold for slaughter, in stalls that are too narrow for them to turn around even. Um, uh, that's not legal in the European Union either. Uh, so, yeah, there have been progress elsewhere. And, and some of the states of the United States too, um, where there's been the possibility of citizens voting. So California, for example, has this mechanism for citizens to collect petitions and then they can get something on the ballot. Uh, so they got on the ballot. Uh, they've twice passed initiatives uh, for farm animals to make sure that they have space to walk around, to turn around, um, and to get rid of those cages for hens that I was just talking about. So also in California, animals are significantly better off than they are in Australia. And I think that's a matter of regret that we're lagging behind on these issues. Yes, I wonder what, what the difference is in terms of the political conditions that have enabled them to take a, a much bigger step in this area than Australia has been. Well, in the case of California, I think it's definitely the fact that you can get a vote on it from the citizens. I think if Australians were to vote on whether to have the standard battery cage, for example, or for that matter, to vote on live exports, um, I think there's no doubt at all that we would ban the battery cage and we would ban live exports. But uh, politically, because there are sensitive swinging seats that have a rural component in them, um, politicians have been reluctant to change these things. And particularly if you have a Liberal National Party coalition, they're very reluctant. And that's why despite the horrible footage that came out of the live export trade, uh, the government they took some modest steps, but they didn't really ban the trade as they should have. 
um, it is it is uh, Labor Party policy uh, and Greens policy too to to ban the trade. So um, you know, I'm really hopeful that that we'll get a change of government and that uh, Labor will, with support from the Greens, follow through on that policy and and stop the live export trade altogether because it's the only solution to the horrible conditions that we've seen. Mm. Um, Before we move on from this kind of area around the killing of animals or the the taking of animal products, um, I want to talk about the human ways or the human choices that we can make in terms of um, not just changing policy for animals but also um, our personal choices and of course we've mentioned vegetarianism as being um, one of those choices. There's another choice as well um, which is obviously known as veganism and um, you write on your website that you would now describe yourself as a flexible vegan which means that you're mostly vegan but not fanatical about avoiding all animal products when it is difficult to do so. So in how have you reached the point um, in your life where this is, I guess, the position that you, you that sits well with you? Right. Well, uh, I became a vegetarian as I, after the result of that conversation I mentioned um, uh, in 1970 or maybe it was January 71, I think, actually, by the time uh, I made that decision. Um, and I was a vegetarian for many years, and at that time, you know, there were hardly any vegans. There was a, a little vegan society in England, had maybe 300 members, and that was probably most of the vegans in the United Kingdom. Um, and it was very hard to get vegan food anywhere. Most people, if, you know, wouldn't really understand what the word meant even at the time. Um, but gradually, I became aware that, uh, particularly, the dairy industry involves a great deal of suffering. Um, I mentioned before that when you have mammals and you take the calf away from the mother, that causes a lot of distress to both of them. And that's absolutely standard in the dairy industry because cows don't give milk unless they've recently given birth. So uh, you have to make cows pregnant. Uh, They have to give birth to a calf uh, roughly once a year. Uh, And then you take the calf away. If it's a male calf, it's no use as a dairy cow and it's not the kind of animal you raise for beef normally. So normally it will be taken away and killed for, for veal. Some of them may be raised for hamburger or something like that. But, but the separation of the cow and the calf is normal because the dairy farmer wants the milk for the, um, for, to sell, obviously. So that's, that's completely standard. I did uh, recently hear about a, a place up near Shepparton called uh, How Now Milk, I think, um, that doesn't do that. It's very small um, and obviously the milk is more expensive. But that's the first uh, dairy place I've ever heard of that doesn't take the calves away from the mother routinely at birth. So, you know, when I learned about that and about the suffering that's involved um, and also the intensification of the dairy industry, because a lot of dairy farms do have their cows mostly indoors, not not all of them, but many of them. Um, so then I decided that really this is not defensible either and I ought to get off dairy products. Um, and with eggs, certainly uh, any eggs that come from caged hens, I, I stopped buying right at the start when I became a vegetarian. With If you have you know, good free-range pr- production where hens are outside, um, that's, that's more tolerable, I think. I'm not so uh, worried about, about that. But I think it's better to avoid animal products uh, when you can. Uh, on the other hand, as I said, I'm, I'm flexible because I, I don't think it helps the movement uh, to treat this as if it was a kind of a religion where, you know, a tiny amount of skim milk powder added to some product is going to mean that you you can't touch it. Um, 
yes, avoid it if you can, prefer products that are vegan, and now there's a lot more of them out there. But um, to me, it's, as I said right at the beginning when we were talking about utilitarianism, it's not uh, a matter of obeying some kind of rule that says never eat uh, any animal product. It's a matter of saying, what are the consequences of what I'm doing? And, and the consequences that I want are not to give significant financial support to industries that abuse animals. So um, that's why I'm not going to you know, buy things that are animal products um, if I can uh, avoid it. But, but if there are some small elements that make no real significant difference, um, it's not a terrible thing. And then also, of course, if you think about consequences, you have to think about the effect you're having on other people. And if you come across as being too fanatical, I think you'll produce you know, fewer, you, well, it won't be such a good example you're setting and, and fewer people will be persuaded to act uh, similarly or to move in the direction that you are if you come across as being very hardline. Yes, certainly making modifications to any diet is already a challenge for a lot of people, I know, and certainly um, it wasn't not so much of an issue for me given that I started so early, I don't miss um, eating meat at all. Uh, but in terms of the uh, other areas of animal rights and the animal rights movement um, that you've been involved with in England, Australia and America, um, you founded an organisation called the Australian Federation of Animal Societies, which is now called Animals Australia. And um, there's a whole range of issues that bodies such as Animals Australia uh, would advocate on. And I'm particularly interested in one of the areas which seems to be um, slightly more of a grey area in the utilitarian approach to it and that is in terms of um, experimenting on animals and I'm thinking in particular for medical purposes. Could you um, share with us some of the arguments around why you may or may not um, in, engage in those kinds of experiments? You're right, that's exactly an area where uh, a utilitarian approach might be different from a more absolutist approach and uh, the late uh, Tom Regan, who was another philosopher and a uh, friend of mine, uh, we, we co-edited a book together um, called Animal Rights and Human Obligations. Uh, he was more of a rights-based person. So, so he, his view was that you can never be justified in performing a harmful experiment on an animal. Um, whereas my view is that, uh, as I said before, we should give the same weight to the suffering of animals that we give to the suffering of similar suffering of humans, uh, that essentially uh, if we're prepared to do an experiment on an animal, then if there were a possibility of doing it on, on humans, um, you know, that would, we would have to say that would be justifiable as well. Um, but uh, there might be some cases where the benefits of the uh, uh, experiment are so great that even taking, giving full weight to the suffering that you might be inflicting on animals, if there's no other way to find out what you need to find out and uh, to obtain the benefits that you're obtaining, uh, and that has been accepted by a sort of pretty impartial kind of committee, let's say, that's examined the evidence for this, then it, it could be justifiable to continue with an experiment or perform an experiment. So uh, again, I'm not an absolutist about saying there can be no justifiable experiments on animals. But I do think that if you applied this standard, the number of experiments that we would be doing would be a, a very small fraction of the number that we're doing today because mm. uh, in practice, we don't apply this kind of standard. We don't give similar weight to the interests of animals that we would give 
to humans uh, and we tend to regard animals just as something that's there to do research on without you know, with with some thought about their welfare, I think again the situation has improved a little bit since I first wrote Animal Liberation, but um, certainly not, still not nearly enough concern about their welfare. Yes, you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on Three Triple R FM, and I'm speaking with philosopher Peter Singer, who is uh, here to do a number of events, which I'll give the details of um, towards the end of this interview, Peter. Um, now that we're kind of towards the end of this interview, I wanted to bring in one of your other very important ideas um, that has become something um, of a, a more recent phenomenon in terms of the terminology around it, um, which is effective altruism and this concept that you have about doing the most good um, in the most effective way and that that doesn't necessarily bring in things like personal preferences. And uh, it certainly does raise um, questions for philanthropists on the the high end, people who have a lot of money to give and also um, those who don't have as much money to give but still want to to make a difference and make change. Um, In terms of effective altruism, what really um, does that concept involve and entail and how is it different from um, altruism? Well, the altruism element is the same. Uh, By altruism, I mean that we're acting essentially to make the world a better place, not only for ourselves, the contrast between egoism and altruism. Uh, and uh, people in the effective altruism movement regard that as a good thing to do. It's not necessarily the only thing to do. We're not expecting people to be saints, but uh, effective altruists are concerned to make the world a better place and uh, to do uh, as much good as they can or to do as much good as possible with whatever resources and time they have to devote to making the world a better place. But what's different about the effective altruism movement is this emphasis on getting evidence about the effectiveness of what you're doing and using that evidence to select the best causes to do the most good. Uh, And people typically don't do that when they're giving to charity. I mean, they will give to some charity because they see a leaflet that has a picture of a smiling kid on it and that appeals to them or they might, you know, often people will say, well, I'm going to give to uh, breast cancer research because my mother died from breast cancer. Um, And they don't really investigate how much good uh, these things are going to do. And if you do carry out those investigations, then very often you find that the things that people are giving to are not really the best things. Because, for example, in terms of medical research uh, or medical interventions, the low-hanging fruit really is still in the low-income countries, in, in some of the poorest countries in the world, where there are diseases that we know how to treat or conditions like blindness that we know how to fix and easily can fix, um, but there aren't the resources to do it. So, for example, there are people who are blind in, in low-income countries because they have cataracts. Now, nobody is blind in Australia because they have cataracts because we have a you know, universal health insurance uh, and everybody who can't see because they have a cataract will get the cataracts removed. It's a very simple operation. Um, but that doesn't happen in, in poorer countries. Uh, and similarly, in terms of uh, giving to medical research, the diseases that affect people in, in rich countries have already had a lot of research going into them, um, whereas some of the other ones have had very little research going into them and uh, you know, could, be, could be cured or prevented much more easily and much more cheaply 
if people would do that. So, so those are the kinds of things that effective altruists are aware of, and they're trying to make their resources go as far as possible. Yes, and so in terms of the um, the altruists themselves that are there to perhaps give money, um, you write in The Most Good You Can Do, that the book that certainly covers this in a great depth, um, is that you say effective altruists directly benefit others but indirectly often benefit themselves. Um, do you find that it is problematic in some regards that uh, philanthropists often on the higher end will get an immense benefit, personal benefit and gain from perhaps giving money um, to, to certain causes and does that reduce, I guess, the um, altruistic nature of the gift? Well, it depends what kind of gain you're talking about. I mean, if, if, if they're getting a big tax benefit, for example, uh, and yes, I suppose it does to some extent reduce the altruistic nature of the gift but if the benefit they get is um, that they feel that their life now has a purpose um, and they feel that after all accumulating all that money uh, was a good thing to do because they're able to use it to benefit others then I don't think that reduces their altruism at all I think it's terrific that they do have that purpose and I wish everybody regarded making the world a better place as one of their primary purposes in, in life that's the kind of person that we want to have. Yes. So, you know, the psychological benefit that people get in that way, I think, is, is, is a positive thing, and I encourage it. That's so well said. Um, Peter, just finally, we've been talking about a range of ideas and um, philosophy has been guiding us in that. You, ha along with some of your colleagues, um, have come up with an idea to establish a journal, an academic journal of controversial ideas, which would be peer-reviewed, as all academic journals are, um, or at least the, the reputable ones. And um, I understand that it would involve academics who um, may be seeking to put forward ideas that are based and founded on evidence and solid um, rational argument, but may be perhaps controversial and have uh, significant consequences for their career or their reputation should they um, put their name to it. Could you um, just briefly share with us uh, the, the kind of threat that academic freedom faces at the moment in comparison to perhaps 10 or 15 years ago when it was um, maybe not so controversial to put forward ideas and arguments that were um, still, may cause offence, but were still, uh, you know, all in, all in serving um, furthering ideas and furthering society by having these debates out in the open? Yes, there certainly has been a change in the academic climate and it's not easy to say exactly why. Some people think that the internet has had a major role in that. Uh, other people think that it's more a matter of uh, identity politics and people wanting to be protected and sheltered from uh, criticism or anything that may cause offence. But it certainly is true that uh, particularly you know, junior academics, um, people who don't have a tenured position, um, are putting themselves at risk to some extent when they express controversial ideas, um, you know, a variety of sensitive areas that people might write about. Uh, an example was a, an, an article about uh, arguing that, uh, or basically asking the question, why is it that we think that it's perfectly proper for people to be able to change their gender, but not to change their race, right? Because there was a case of a woman who identified as an African-American, but was not African-American in terms of background. And it was just raising that question for discussion. Uh, but that got a lot of flack and a lot of abuse uh, for the author, who was a, a relatively young 
female academic. Um, and and there have been other cases. Just recently, uh, um, a, a man called Noah Cowell was dismissed from uh, a postdoctoral position in Cambridge University uh, because people thought that his ideas were racist. I, I think, um, you know, the, that obviously we, I, I don't want to support people who are into racist vil racial vilification or hatred, but I think there are debates that you can have within areas about uh, racial differences that uh, you ought to be able to have if they're based on, on good evidence. Um, and yet that's become very difficult. Uh, so there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of areas now. Uh, colonialism is another history of colonialism is another thing that's become difficult to discuss. So uh, my colleagues and I do think that, that giving people the opportunity to publish uh, anonymously if they wish to do so, um, so that they, the ideas can get out there, but they won't have the personal harmful consequences for their career, um, might be a way of breaking through this climate of, uh, which I think has, has become somewhat repressive in terms of, of controversial ideas. Yes, I believe it's also been um, quite problematic uh, in terms of the, the anecdotal evidence I've gathered from others around uh, even conversations in tutorials at universities where um, when there's more sensitivity around issues on race, on sex, uh, as you say, on colonialism and violence. And, uh, and certainly a lot of lecturers have um, felt the need to uh, in include trigger warnings for people and often um, a lot of uh, lecturers who's, who do that, um, they get the response back from students sometimes in some cases that, you know, there was really no need for a warning because as universities are, they are a place to have contests of ideas and to really, um, to not just have opinions but to actually have ideas that are, argued uh, rigorously and based on, as you said, evidence and um, rational argument and that, you know, in order to, to advance an issue and to get to truth, one needs to have quite uh, rigorous debates. And, um, you know, those debates in tutorials are very important for the younger generation coming through universities. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what ideas, uh, that's what universities should be, uh, places for ideas of all kinds and people should expect when they go to university to be challenged in some of their preconceptions. Um, so, yeah, I, that's what we're trying to do, to keep that open. Well, that's wonderful to see. And I know um, people can look out for that. I believe it will be uh, perhaps launching towards the end of this year. We hope so, yeah. We're trying to find the right uh, open access platform so that uh, everybody can read the articles in it without having to pay up for a subscription. Uh, we haven't quite got that in place yet, but we hope to have it by the end of the year. That's so wonderful. Um, Peter, you have been a great example to that very cause, which is to challenge us and to make us um, reflect and question our own choices. And certainly philosophy provides a, a really great framework to be able to examine our uh, life choices and the consequences that they have, not only for ourselves, but for others like animals. And um, if people would like to, they can uh, have a dinner conversation with you at uh, Law Week, which is next week. And and it is um, still, I believe, some tickets might be available and it's on Tuesday, May the 14th from 5.30 till 9.30 at Narankar Restaurant in Melbourne, which uh, people can find at um, the lawweek.net.au website and I believe it's um, hosted by Lawyers for Animals. That's right, yeah, great group of lawyers working for animals. Yes. So I'm um, happy to support them. Thank you yeah. so much, Peter, for your time. Uh, I so much value and um, appreciate your thoughts today. Thanks, Amy. It's been good to talk to you. Thank Bye. you.
That was the wonderful Peter Singer, a uh, fabulous philosopher. He's, um, you know, obviously very well known for his ideas and to challenge us not just on animal uh, ethics and rights, but also on uh, issues like voluntary euthanasia. Um, there's so many areas that he's been pushing um us with in and using utilitarianism uh, as a way to do that. So if you haven't uh, had a chance, of course, you can go through his wonderful catalogue of books. He's uh, written so many. Um, obviously, the most important for our discussion is animal liberation, but he's also uh, authored a range of other related books as well, uh, including things like The Ethics of What We Eat, which was co-authored with Jim Mason. So uh, as I said, you can have dinner with Peter Singer as part of Melbourne's Law Week and uh, you can book tickets for that and it's a Q&A style discussion. You'll get to put forward ideas that you'd like Peter Singer to answer um, and uh, obviously there's a lot of food for thought there just in what we've been discussing and much more. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now, I'm so pleased to have with me in the studio two wonderful women. They are historians, Heather Sheard and Ruth Lee, and they're both here in the studio with me to talk about a great book that they have co-authored, and it's called Women to the Front, The Extraordinary Australian Women Doctors of the Great War. And uh, the book is so detailed and um, it's drawing on some very important uh, primary documents that have not really been available to many people so that's very exciting and we're talking about women who perhaps uh, haven't been known or recognised particularly when we think about uh, days such as Anzac Day or Remembrance Day so I'm very excited that we do get to um, explore these great women with uh, Heather and Ruth and I welcome them now. Hi there. Hi to Ruth. Hello, Amy. Hi, and Heather. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Thank you both for taking the time to come in and sharing your great knowledge of these great women. Um, first of all, just to, to get the obvious out of the way, but it is quite, I am quite intrigued as to how it all happened. How did you encounter some of these women that you've focused your attention on? And I know that um, there are a couple of key women that you've really uh, researched and looked into as part of your PhDs and, and theses? Okay. Um, yes, my um, PhD thesis was about Dr Vera Scantleby-Brown, and uh, who uh, I hate to admit now, but I have actually never heard of until I started researching um, Victoria's uh, maternal and child health system. And I found her and then quickly found that she had um, actually been to the Great War and served for nearly two years as a surgeon at the Endell Street Military Hospital. And um, as I researched her particular life and her contribution over the whole of her life, I kept coming across mentions of other women doctors who also had served, which really um, stirred my interest and I kept putting aside all these little bits of information. When I finished my PhD, I thought this was the time now to really research these women, um, to hopefully write something that would honour the work that they had done and to gain some sort of wider recognition for them as well. So that's how I began. And it was quite similar for me too, Amy. Well, I stumbled upon this wonderful collection of family papers from the Daguerre's family and Dr Mary Daguerre's 
I had seen she'd been a bit of a footnote in histories of Geelong because she worked there after the war for 40 years. Um, but similar to Heather, um, looking at what she did in her life and particularly being fascinated by this thought of this person getting on a ship, sailing over to London um, to join the First World War war effort. And she'd actually tried to enlist but was rejected by the army. And I think this is quite crucial to our whole endeavour was, I mean, I didn't know that there weren't women doctors in World War I overseas, but there weren't. Only nurses could enlist. So these women, and we've ended up finding 26 so far, um, all travelled independently despite being rejected by the British and Australian armies and joined voluntary organisations, in usually in London, and then set off to both the Eastern and Western Fronts. It is phenomenal to think that that is the case, that these women, despite being getting this pushback and a brush off, decided, no, I'm so you know passionate, I want to go and do this, and made that trip, which was a pretty substantial trip in you know 1914 or 1915 depending mm. on when they went across um, but also that women were only just really being part of the medical profession and even then not quite accepted in Australia in the mainstream and uh, were often I believe relegated to um, focusing on women's health which of course is not you know a, a bad thing and children's health but you know they weren't necessarily accepted as part of the broader um, those other specialisations and areas that uh, that men tended towards. Mm. Yes, um, at that particular time, it it was. Uh, it's certainly true, Amy, that um, women were not accepted right into the medical profession at all. Um, and apart from uh, you say they were relegated to uh, to women's health, even so, they were still not able to gain hospital positions, even in in the women's hospitals. Um, so they really. Gaining a position in a hospital was really the start um, to actually developing a career overall in medicine and they couldn't access um, those particular positions. So, yeah, it was very difficult for them at that time. Mm. And let's just put into context uh, when women in Australia were able to graduate with a degree in medicine because that was still a fairly recent phenomenon, wasn't it? Yes, it was 1881 where the, um, I'm sorry, 1891, the first three women graduated, um, uh, two in Melbourne, uh, Clara Stone and Margaret White, they um, graduated in 1891 and um, Dr Laura Fowler in, at the University of Adelaide also in 1891. So by the time the war broke out they had been graduating for 23 years and there were around 130 uh, Australian women registered as medical practitioners by, by 1914. Mm. And in terms of the world context and Australia's place, were there other countries that were doing better or were they doing worse in terms of women's ability to actually attend university and pursue a career as a doctor? So obviously nursing would have been a, a far more accepted profession for women That's at right. the time. Um, in London, there was the London... Was it the London, London School of Medicine for Women? School of, thank you, Heather. <laughs> um, and some of the Australian women earlier 
had travelled over to both Edinburgh and London to qualify as doctors. Um, yeah, in the eighteen in the eighteen eighties. So, yeah, they they were well aware they were they were operating in an international context, and were made a lot of friendships with medical women, particularly in the UK. Mm. Um, Initially, we really, Australia really lagged behind in terms of uh, women's access to medical degrees. So Dr Constance Stone, who is very much responsible for the um, creation of the Queen Victoria Hospital in, in Melbourne, she had to go to America um, to get her degree. So women could gain access to medical schools in America, um, in Switzerland, um, in Belgium and also um, in, in London and in Scotland and also in Ireland at the University of Dublin. So it did take us a while. However, when women were admitted in Australia, they were admitted to the medical degrees in the faculties and not put into separate um, medical schools as they were in London and Scotland. Mm. And I wonder in terms of specialisation, that might be another um, issue for women because as we know, even in the current day, uh, there's still a great divide between uh, people who particularly women who are specialising as physicians because of the kind of life demands that are made on a physician as opposed to a surgeon and so we see surgery still dominated by men today particularly at the higher end of consultants and heads of departments in terms of these women the 26 women that you've researched who who went across what kind of specializations and skills and like areas of focus did they have well the war actually presented an incredible opportunity in surgery for the women mm. to gain experience and a number of them made that very clear that you know this was something not to miss that if they were active on the war front they'd be gaining incredible experience that they couldn't get elsewhere. So I'm not sure, Heather, you could help here. Um, specialty training really didn't seem to be an option prior to World War II mm. for yeah. most of those women. Yeah, specialisation in medicine generally, both male and female, was pretty well non-existent um, before the First World War. So you'd find that uh, every doctor just about... Um, people we would today call general practitioners actually that was a term that wasn't used at that time and they actually wrote down that they were surgeons mm. um, but as uh, as we said before women couldn't gain access to surgical positions in hospitals it really was thought that if you put a woman into surgery um, or into trauma and, and accident areas that they would probably become hysterical, being women. And, um, and also, of course, there was an enormous taboo against women doctors um, treating men, men patients, and that was one of the reasons that they were so opposed to enlisting women as, as doctors, that they would primarily have men as their patients, and that was um, that horrified uh, officialdom at the time. Yeah. Mm. It's really funny to think that, given that so many of the people who were, I guess, day-to-day, hands-on, caring for the men were women uh, in the form of nurses <laughs> and, you know, um, some some kind of cultural phenomenons like TV shows such as 
Anzac girls has shown some of those women who were nurses on the front lines um, near Gallipoli and elsewhere. And there were also, interestingly, a couple of cases where they showed women learning to do anaesthesia, for example, which, of course, was very early, um, still developing. And, and of course, medicine at that time, presumably, still had a lot of development to go to get to the point of even World War II um, Mm. and the medicine that we had then. But I am interested in um, some of the individuals that you've been discussing. And uh, Heather, you mentioned Dr. Vera Scantlebury-Brown, which is a fantastic name. (laughs) Um, And I recall, and you said that she worked at a a London military hospital. Um, Is this the hospital that was run entirely by women? It was. Um, Really the way that these Australian women doctors were able to access positions since they couldn't do so officially um, was by um, in, by joining the hospitals that were created by the suffrage um, um, movement in, in England. And um, there's two major ones that we talk about in the book, um, one being the Scottish Women's Hospital, and, and Ruth will probably talk about that in a little while, but the other was the Women's Hospital Corps, which was created by Dr Louisa Garrett-Anderson, who was the daughter of the first registered um, woman doctor in England, Dr Elizabeth Garrett-Anderson, and Scotswoman Dr Flora Murray. And uh, they created the Endell Street Military Hospital in a workhouse. They were given a workhouse in Covent Garden in London, a five-storey workhouse that is is supposedly the one that um, Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist is, is based on. And uh, they created a 560 60-bed hospital in that old workhouse and if you want a comparison the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Alfred Hospital today have about 360 patients so this was an enormous hospital they did have a little wing for the WAC the Women's uh, the women's um, Army Corps but most of them by far 99% of their patients were men mm. and they worked from uh, for four years from 1915 to 1919 treating over 26,000 wounded soldiers in that time and all of the specialists all of the doctors um, all of the orderlies all of the nurses um, 180 staff were all women. There were there was initially a small um, corps of army men, but as demand for for men in the services increased, um, it ended up four, and then eventually one. <laughs> and so the women did everything, everything that you can imagine to run a 560 bed hospital was done by the women. Yes, and five Australian women doctors served at that hospital during the war. It's phenomenal, really, that they've achieved that at all let alone at that time which is just amazing yeah it it really came about because when the war began they formed their own hospital corps and raced over to paris and they were given i don't know if you've been to paris but they were given the newly built um, Claridge's Hotel on the Champs-Élysées. Oh, wow. Yes, it was about to open and it was commandeered by the French government and they were given that. And they did... Initially, they, they um, experienced quite a lot of... Um, a little bit of hostility and surprise uh, that they were actually running this hospital. But they did such a brilliant job that um, the Chief of Medical Services back in London, um, Keogh, he actually was game enough, if you like, at the time to ask them to come back 
and established this hospital at Ingle Street. So that's how mm. it, it came about. Yeah, it's really yeah interesting that you say you know the British War Office initially had that you know absolutely no not at all mm. couldn't even. In- think of countenance the idea of women doctors Mm. being part of the official um, enlisted military doctors Mm. Uh, I'm really interested also in the fact that I believe um, Vera did keep records of her time there and that you've been able to utilize and you both have utilized obviously a range of sources as Mm. historians do but what did you find when you were reading through Vera's letters home was her state of mind and her experience and was she um, excited by the types of challenges surgical challenges that she uh, countenanced or did she actually you know find it quite overwhelming she did Um, I think in the first six months she really uh, doubted herself enormously she wrote that military surgery was horrible um, and that she just thought that she didn't have the capabilities to do it. That's what she wrote home to her family. And I think that she nearly went under mentally in that in that first six months. But the people that she worked for, Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett-Anderson, were very, perhaps ahead of their time in realising the shock and the trauma that this kind of work did. And Vera was only 27 years old at the time. Um, and so they, they were very supportive in... Uh, in getting her, getting any new staff to do things like anaesthetics for a long while, to giving them only responsibility for only one ward, and gradually you can see in her writing a change to um, to more and more confidence. And what she did was to go to the London School um, of Medicine for Women and practice anatomy in their um, in their dissection room, so that she could um, gain more. Um, initially, she was just using her anatomy textbook that she'd taken with her. From, from Melbourne University but she knew that she needed more than that and um, gradually she gained confidence until in the end you can see in her letters little lists of things oh today I did uh, you know two secondary amputations uh, operation on a nerve a fracture and you can see that she did gain considerable mm. confidence. Yeah, it makes me think that you know, these types of injuries that were occurring in World War One, which was the first total war that we saw, you know, there's a whole range of new injuries or very severe injuries, as you say, amputations and shrapnel wounds. And, you know, you would need to retrieve pieces of shrapnel and know and understand the vascular system and where the arteries are. You know, obviously these, you know, are new challenges to any doctor really in terms of the scale and also probably the severity of the disability. And we haven't even looked at uh, obviously the mental trauma that a lot of soldiers came back with and shell shock, for example. Let's talk also about uh, Mary DeGarris, who's Mm. a really fascinating character herself. And I love that she had a connection to Geelong, which is (laughs) so nice. And I believe that she's had a little bit of recognition in the last couple of years um, through government funding for different things, like a film about her life, a short movie. And Yes. We made um, a short video on her life for the Her Place Women's Museum, which was launched just last week mm. which has now got new a new building well a very old building um in east melbourne yes yeah it's wonderful um well look mary was 10 years older than vera and she part of her motivation for going to war was to be there because her fiance um who she'd met in outback tibberborough um 
he he had enlisted and gone with Mary's first cousin, both of them, Colin and Ralph, um, in 1915. She spent a very anxious time waiting and then just decided in early 1916 she had to go back to London to be there in case he was wounded and repatriated back, which most of the wounded were. So she worked at the Manor War Hospital in Epsom and there are a lot of his letters and her letters in the papers, in the family papers, but then everything ground to a halt and um, I found only about three letters through the war years in the family papers at home. Um, so Colin, unfortunately, was killed in the Battle of Pozier in um early August 1916. Mary didn't hear for six weeks as to what happened because his letters had Mm. just stopped. And then she was totally bereft and grief-stricken and there are some very moving letters that she wrote back to her, particularly her twin sister, Bessie, at home. Um, After that, it seems she gathered herself together in December of that year and joined the Scottish Women's Hospitals which had been set up by Scottish women doctor Elsie Inglis, who mobilised all the suffrage societies um, in the UK to fund all female um, medical units, which they offered to the British Army, who told them to go home and sit still. (laughs) Um, So they offered themselves to the Allied armies, France, Russia, um, Serbia, who who all grabbed the offer Mm. because so many male doctors had been killed in the war, particularly by 1917. There was a dire shortage. So Mary um, and another Australian woman, Dr Agnes Bennett, who was again 10 years older than Mary, um, Agnes set up the what was called the America Unit in northern Macedonia, working auspice by the French Red Cross and answerable to the Serbian army. So they sent up a 200-bed tent hospital by a lake just over the mountains from the shifting battlefront, the Germans and Bulgarians um, and the Austrians coming down through Serbia fighting Mm. the Serbian army. Um, So Mary worked under Agnes for a year and then she was taken very ill with malaria, so Agnes left, and Mary was appointed the chief medical officer there. So that was it's 200 amazing. beds in that hospital. Um, yes, fully staffed by women. They did have some Serbian male helpers, but yes, everything from running a fleet of Ford ambulances, repairing the vehicles, digging the latrines, planting the veggie gardens, attending them. Um, Mary had to administer the lot with, of course, the nurses, the cooks, the orderlies, etc. So where I found a lot of correspondence were in the archives of the Scottish Women's Hospitals. And Mary was always a prolific writer, so it was very odd that there wasn't much here in any papers. But there were boxes of Mary's correspondence. She sat in her tent every night, typing away copious, like, emails, Mm -hmm. really, 
sending them back to the Scottish Women's Headquarters for, you know, ordering supplies and all of that sort of thing. And are they held in Scotland? Yes. Yes, I do have copies. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, And how did these women fundraise or manage to fund these hospitals? Because if they're not getting support from the war office, how did they actually establish them? This is a wonderful story. They had a... They employed women as professional fundraisers, so that so returning women doctors and nurses would give public lectures all around London. They had a lot of connections into British high society. A lot of wealthy women wanted to help the war effort, um, but they also they sent them round the empire. They sent them to America, to Australia, to India. And there was a wonderful letter where um, the fundraiser was writing back and said that the um, Queenslanders were wonderfully friendly <laughs> and generous, but the Victorians weren't nearly as good. <laughs> so oh that was quite a laugh. <laughs> but yes. The so, competition there mm. existed that early. <laughs> and very wealthy philanthropic women in America funded mm. the fleet of Ford ambulances, for example, in um Ostrovo was where they were. So they were very well equipped. It was quite astonishing. Mm. And what kinds of battlefields, given their situation, their actual location over there, what kind of battlefields and soldiers were they treating? Um, All nationalities. So not just allied prisoners. I mean, not prisoners. Soldiers. Allied soldiers. Mm. Um, But enemy soldiers too. Whoever was wounded seemed to be. And there were a wide range um, of soldiers from all over Europe and some from other colonial areas. So quite multicultural. Mm. Mm. Did she ever comment around whether there was that tension there, given that there's not only the Allies but the, the enemy within the hospital? Well, certainly the majority were Allies mm. and Serbians wounded. Um, no, look, I didn't find anything there. Um, uh, look, there were, there were disagreements sometimes amongst staff. There were ongoing tensions, perhaps the, both Agnes and Mary were very proper and very on guard and wanting to guard the unit's reputation. So if some of the nurses or orderlies were getting a bit out of hand, wandering off after dark or whatever, they were brought into line. Definitely Mm. it was run along military lines because they were, well, the whole hospital system traditionally was run on a military model. Yeah. So, um, you know, people had to toe the line. But they also had a lot of fun. There were male soldiers' camps around their camp. There was a lot of interaction. Um, Trips down to Salonika, which was a very um, exotic city at that point, where a lot of the Australian nurses were stationed. There were over nearly 3,000 nurses Mm. down at Salonika. So a lot of interaction happening yeah Mm. i'm speaking with heather sheard and ruth lee and they've co-authored a book women to the front the extraordinary australian women doctors of the great war um 
I'd really like to also touch on and understand uh, the the women that you've looked at in particular detail. In terms of the, the the length of World War One, which was obviously 1914 to you know 1919 thereabouts, and obviously there was much more still to be done after the war. You know, people didn't stop being unwell, um, although obviously the battles had ceased. What did the women do? Did they like? Did most of them kind of remain in engaged as a doctor in these hospitals throughout the time of the war, or did they serve for periods? Because I imagine that it was a very demanding job, um, and I, I just wanted to understand the kind of you know commitment and strain that that t- might have had on them. Both of those things that you've mentioned, some um, some served for a short period of time. Little, um, another doctor we haven't mentioned is Queenslander Dr Lillian Cooper, who served for 12 months at the um, at the America Unit Hospital in Ostrovo, and uh, she had spent quite a lot of time at their forward dressing station, which was up on the mountain, and uh, and came down with pneumonia. And she was an older doctor as well, and so after 12 months, her health really. Um, was not strong enough to stand any more war service and, and she went home. Some some doctors, like Dr Grace Cordingly, spent the entire, um, almost the entire war um, undertaking pathology tests at um, the King George Hospital in, in London. Um, sorry, the Royal Herbert Hospital in London. Um, Vera, for example, spent two years, as did Mary Degaris. So it really covered the whole range of, of shorter-term... Um, um, con- oh, not contracts, but shorter-term commitment, if you like, to quite long ones. Mm. In 1917, the RAMC <clears throat> finally um, asked for women to um, come forward because they were so short of doctors at the time at the Battle of the Somme. Um, and... But basically those women were hired on contract and a lot of them went to the island, the hospital island of Malta um, and they served for a period of 12 months. So that was exa- on contract. And although they were employed by the RAMC, they were still not permitted to wear any ba- badges of rank. They were given a rank mm-hmm. so that they'd know how much to pay them, but they were not permitted to demonstrate that rank in the form of any any badges or, or arm patches. And neither did they receive any of the privileges that um, other that the male officers received, like taxation and travel, uniforms, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. And so um, in terms of these these women, we've talked about, you know, the London Military Hospital, we've talked about um, the the, hosp- the tent hospitals that were set up over in uh, Eastern Europe. Were there other um, hospitals that were situated on, say, the Western Front, those kind of areas where the battles were very severe and that are kind of obviously spoken of quite often? Yes, the... Um the Scottish Women's Hospital set up their only um, fixed or permanent hospital, if you like, in an abbey, uh, the Abbey de Roermont, which was, it's about 40, still there, it's about 40 kilometres north of Paris. And they, they could hear the guns. They were within uh, about 20 kilometres from the front line at that time. And like the, um, like the hospital in Ostrovo, they set up a forward dressing station so they could get the, get the wounded soldiers sooner. And that was in a little village called Villers-Cotterêts, which was even closer to the front lines and in the end had to be abandoned and was mm. bombed by the German army. So, yes, that, that was another example of a, a permanent hospital and they, they served there throughout the war for four years. Wow. Just finally, because um, I know we have to finish up, 
in terms of when the women came home and what they did or how they were treated, um, given that they were not recognised officially as uh, part of the war effort and enlisted um, as such as doctors in the military, what was life like for them after? Unfortunately, it uh, was um, the same as when they left. There was very little change here um, in terms of social acceptance and professional acceptance for the women. So when they got home, again, it was extremely difficult for them to, to gain hospital positions. And they had none of the, the... Not that they were great, the benefits for the men, but they had none of the benefits um, that the men received. Uh, quite a few men could stay on their army pay and study over in England, but because they weren't officially enlisted, none of those benefits were accrued. And, and it begs the question of whether they wanted to be surgeons, but none of the women um, ended up in surgery after the war. Mm. It's, uh, it's sad to see that that did happen, but it's also really great that you have highlighted their wonderful stories in this book and people can actually head along to the book launch tonight in Melbourne. It's uh, today at 6pm at the Melbourne Welsh Church, mm-hmm. um, which I believe is on Latrobe Street. It is, 320. Excellent. And um, do people need to register or can they just head along? No, they don't. We'd be delighted to see them, wouldn't we, Ruth? Yes, we would. <laughs> that would be All wonderful. Welcome. Oh, good. Well, I hope people can attend and I'll put the details up on our social media. And thank, thank you. you both so much for coming in and being so generous with your time and thoughts. Thanks, Amy, for the opportunity. Thank you, Amy. Wonderful. I've been speaking with two historians, Dr Heather Sheard and Dr Ruth Lee, and they're co-authors of the book Women to the Front, uh, The Extraordinary Australian Women Doctors of the Great War, which is out through Penguin Australia. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.